This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is Thursday, August the 12th. I'm John Dunn. Welcome to this, the 75th episode of the Best Friends Podcast. Now, all of us have had a defining moment in our lives, more than one. These are things that happen that change the way we think, behave, fundamentally change. Big events probably come to mind, right? Getting married, having kids, losing a loved one. On the professional side, I'd be willing to bet the moment you knew you wanted to help animals is pretty high up there. Now, our guest this week, Heather Owen, the executive director of One Tale at a Time in Chicago. One of those moments for her was watching children cry as their beloved pet was led away at the shelter, surrendered. Not because the family didn't want the pet anymore. They came to that excruciating decision because they believed it was their only choice, even though with just a little bit of help, they could all stay together. It was those moments, Heather says, that helped her identify a new mantra. It's not rescue if they already have a home. One Tale at a Time recently launched Pet Mutual Aid. These are programs designed to support the pet owners of Chicago, so those situations become a thing of the past. My conversation with Heather coming right up. First, some very important news because it is time for you to submit your application for a 2022 Rachel Ray Grant. You will find all of the information on the Best Friends Network Partner website, which is network.bestfriends.org. Again, network.bestfriends.org. Best Friends partners with the Rachel Ray Foundation to offer two different grant opportunities. The Rachel Ray Save Them All grants, these are for projects that directly reduce the life-saving gap in shelters, could help with things like hiring staff, a foster coordinator perhaps, or someone to manage a return to field program at your shelter for community cats, medical care for at-risk pets. And then we have the Rachel Ray No-Kill Excellence grants. These are all about innovative partnerships, mentorships, collaborations within the community, efforts to help save hard-to-place animals, for example. And this is very relevant for today's discussion, intake prevention programs that provide assistance to allow pets to stay with their families. You do need to be a network partner to be eligible to receive either one of the grants or both. You can apply for both. If you're not yet a network partner, it's an easy fix, it's free to join, but you do have to be an approved partner before you can apply for a grant. So if that describes you, then listen closely because you have a deadline coming up much sooner. Your application to become a network partner has to be in by the 23rd of August. So go to network.bestfriends.org. On that page, look up in the top right, you'll see opportunities. Go there, you'll find everything you need to know. Again, the deadline to become a Best Friends Network partner, August 23rd. The deadline for Best Friends Network partners to get grant applications in, Friday, September 3rd. Don't put it off thinking you've got time because uh, I swear it was just February like a minute ago. So the deadlines will be here before you know it. Go to network.bestfriends.org. Okay, so now here we go. My conversation with Heather Owen, the executive director of One Tale at a Time in Chicago, where we're talking about keeping people and pets together through pet mutual aid. Hey, listen, I don't want to put you on the spot. And if you're not comfortable talking about it, I won't put it in. But you're not at 100% right now because you are recovering from COVID. Yeah, I'm like, this is day 15 and I feel okay but I still have like a nagging cough. Hopefully I'm not going to cough 
during this. It just feels like the worst flu. So I'm sorry you don't feel well. Uh, I'm glad you're on the mend, but I am thankful that you were feeling up to chatting with me. I'm so bored, so thank you for the opportunity. I'm dying here. Wait a minute. Did you just say I'm so bored (laughs) that I might as well do the Best Friends podcast because it'll give me something to do? Fine, whatever. (laughs) Well, I am happy to talk to you about the mutual aid work, uh, and not just because I'm bored, Heather. uh, But before we do that, let's check in because we've talked on the podcast previously about Chicago the amazing life-saving progress you've made there over the last few years. How are things right now, mid-2021? Chicago's okay. So last year, like most places, we had the amazing silver lining of the pandemic where everyone was fostering and adopting and our local animal control was empty for the first time I've ever seen it empty in 14 years of doing this. Um, But it's starting to fill back up again. And the last couple of months, we've really felt the squeeze. I think people are traveling and going back to work. And and also like COVID and pandemic related problems are catching up to people like housing issues and um, finances and people are getting sick again. So we are seeing more animals in need and less people wanting to help them. Um, I really am stoked to be talking with you about the launch of, of this pet mutual aid program. I, I don't think you know this concept is new of keeping families together, keeping pets with family. But certainly, I think with COVID, uh, you know, community-supported sheltering, this is being talked about more than ever. And I think people really want to understand how to do this kind of thing where they live. So, you know, learning about this approach you've taken at one tail at a time, I think it's going to help a lot of people to, you know, do more where they live. Yeah. And so my joke that I keep saying that my board doesn't like is that this is really just a marketing ploy Um, because, and I say that because we've been doing this for years. So it's not really new. It's just an opportunity for us to talk about it in a different way. So we found out over the last year that people didn't really understand all the work we were doing in our community and all the partnerships we had. So this launch of Pet Mutual Aid did two things for us. Number one, it, it allowed people an opportunity to hear about what we're doing and all the success we've had in keeping pets with families. But it also forced us to do what we've been talking about for a long time, which is make it a priority because we always just talk about adoption. We always talk about foster and look who we saved, but we never really talk about this other piece of it, which is the, my little mantra here is it's not rescue if they already have a home. So it's now an opportunity for us to like, put our foot down and really like plant a stake in the ground and say that for real, for real. And we're not taking pets from families anymore. So not all of the programs that are falling under this mutual aid program banner, if you will, are new, but you have developed some new stuff. Yeah. Some of them are newer. Um, So the ones that we've been doing, we've been doing like the vaccine clinics and CRISP, which is our, our shelter support program for 10 years and six years. And then some of like the on the side, keeping pets together, we've been doing sort of unofficially. And then last year during the pandemic, so most of the programs have been going on for about a year and some of them are like brands bacon new. So last year we started, um, we hired people to work in this, in our department, which was I think really big and exciting. And they started making things sort of like, you know, we would do like piecemeal stuff like, oh, someone needs help. Okay, I'll I'll go help them. But, you know, it wasn't an opportunity for people to come to us to consistently get help. So that's sort of what pet mutual aid is like consistently. We can offer these things and help people keep their pets. So mutual aid, it's not a new term concept. Uh, I think maybe new to the animal welfare space, certainly in terms of it being called that uh, and framed up that way. 
you know, I, I, I think a lot of people, and I'll include myself in that group, don't know a lot about mutual aid. So uh, can you just maybe run through, I mean, what does mutual aid mean to you to one tail at a time? Uh, so yeah, mutual aid is definitely became a more popular term. There's a great book by Dean Spade called Mutual Aid. I recommend people read it, especially people in animal welfare. For us, it meant a, a few things. Number one, I think that you know, one of the things that we and other groups that have been doing a lot of this work have gotten wrong over the years is calling it outreach and talking about us bringing resources and helping people and we're, we're empowering people. And that's just, that's wrong. That's, we're done with that. We're out on that. The people that we're working with are already empowered. They're already very powerful people caring for animals, doing TNR, taking in strays, like busting their ass, doing stuff that we don't even know that they're doing. They just don't have a brand and aren't like putting it on Facebook. So for us, it's an opportunity to talk about it as a two-way street. So we'll come and help and we'll bring our, our veterinarians and we'll do, you know, vaccines or we'll bring extra flea and tick medication we have, but they are doing probably the bulk of the work by caring for the animals in their community and helping us by, you know, letting us build a bridge so that we can come in there and, and, and give help. So that's part of it is we got to stop talking about it as us doing outreach and fixing problems and talk about it more as a collaboration between communities and, and groups. The second part is really this idea of it's not like one benevolent rich person or well-funded organization. It is people. And it is people helping each other without constraints of lots of rules, or you have to apply for this grant or fill out this thing or have a license or like a lot of these barriers to programs that governments and big organizations often have. Like we get rid of the barriers and we break it down and it's just people helping people. That's interesting because what you've sort of described there is that there's a person who wants to help. So they donate to one tail at a time. There's a person who needs help. So they reach out to one tail at a time. Thanks to that donation, one tail at a time helps them. So help me understand, you know, how is mutual aid different than from that, which sounds like a very, I think, traditional model? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple differences. One of them being like a lot of outreach efforts from groups in the past would require things like you have to bring in your ID and show your own assistance and you have to sign up for this program and spay neuter your animal and you have to do all of these things and they screen you and you have to be from this zip code and you're, you have to show this. We don't do that. Um, we mostly just trust people. For some of the programs, there are some qualifying things like you have, like, you know, we have one senior pet program, so they have to show they have a senior pet. We have one program that is based on zip code and our CRISP program, the, the shelter support program. We basically just ask our, do you live in Chicago and are you experiencing an, a hardship that you may have to surrender your pet? And if they say yes, then we help them. And then the other piece is that we don't take grants or money for pet mutual aid from people that are going to try to put constraints on it. So instead, it's just people giving money. And it's for us, it's always a lot of people giving a little bit of money. So I'll give you one good example. Um, There's a woman who we found was living in her car. And we found this out because we got a dog from animal control it went to a micro trip. They had a dead end, but we always follow up with those micro trips and like see if we can get a hold of a real person. And we got a hold of a real person who explained her story. Yes, that's my dog. Yes, I love my dog. 
but I am living in my car with two other dogs and my car is broken down so I can't get to work. So traditional models of outreach or rescue don't account for complicated situations like that, but our model does and mutual aid models do. So what we did is we went to our volunteers and we said, hey, there's a woman living in her car, her car's broken down, she wants to go to work. Do you guys wanna help her fix her car? And so our volunteers all pitched in raise enough money to fix her car and then help her get a down payment for um, an apartment. And then we gave her one of her dogs back and she didn't want to keep all three dogs because that's a, you know, that's a lot of dogs for someone who's maybe going through some, some stuff. So we rehomed two of her dogs and gave her back one of her dogs neutered. And, you know, we didn't do that through apply here and we'll get back to you. We did that through, okay, this woman needs help right now. And our volunteers are willing to give that help. So we'll just facilitate that. I'm willing to bet there are people right now, Heather, that are saying, she's crazy. We're in the middle of a pandemic. People are struggling. There are limited resources, the rent and the this and the that. So, you know, Heather's out there not crossing the T's, dotting the I's. She's not checking income. So she's out there just giving stuff away for free to people who probably can easily afford it. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to push back on the idea that there's limited money and limited resources. I think that we live in a country where there's lots of money and resources. And last year, we've seen a lot of success with um, people with scrappy budgets and scrappy ideas. And so I think that we can get there. But the other part of it is like, you know, has someone maybe swindled me for a free rabies vaccine? Sure, maybe. But like, do I care in the long run? No, because that dog got a rabies vaccine and is now safe. Most of the people that I talk to, if I just nudge them a little bit, like, hey, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on in your life? Like, I'm pretty blown away with how complex their hardships are. And so to ask for proof and sit down and do this interview, like just feels more invasive than anything. And if it's not going to get me to a point where like, I'm going to learn something that is going to help me better save animals, then I'm not going to do it. Part of it is laziness. I just like, I have other stuff to do, but part of it is just like efficiency sake. Like, I don't think that the applications and the proof that we have right now for a lot of the outreach programs are efficient, successful. Um, There's no reason to do them. So let's not do them. So I know there are several programs that are part of this kind of larger mutual aid offering that you have. So what are those individual programs? Can we just go through each of them? Yeah, absolutely. So the first, the one that we've been doing the longest is the vaccine clinics. We call them community pet days. And um, a lot of what we do, we stole from other groups. So we want to be really clear on that, like Bad Rap and um, Downtown Dog Rescue in Los Angeles. Like there's groups that have been doing this kind of mutual aid work for a long time and we see it successful there. So that model we brought to Chicago and it's been great. So we've been doing vaccine clinics. We bring them to communities that don't have veterinary clinics. And we actually just did a data collection to see where the vet clinics are and the neighborhoods where we are in often don't have a vet clinic in their neighborhood or in any of the surrounding neighborhoods. So if you don't have a car and you have a big dog, it's really difficult to go get your rabies uh, shot. So we bring all of that stuff to those neighborhoods. And then, you know, these are sort of like Band-Aid programs where it's like, yeah, we'll get you your shots. But what we really want to do is get to know people so that if they get in a spot where they might have to surrender their pet, their big pit bull that's not going to do well in a shelter or their senior pet who's not going to do well in a shelter, we can get them before they get into the shelter. So that's Community Pet Days. The next one that we've been doing for six years is CRISP. It's the Chicagoland Rescue Intervention and Support Program. That is in connection 
with other rescues in Chicago and then in partnership with Chicago Animal Care and Control. So the idea is if someone goes to the shelter and says, I have to surrender my pet, we get to them first and we say, is there anything we can do to help you keep your pet? And there's two reasons for that. Number one, the shelter is very full. We don't need any more animals in there. But the second one is, again, it's not rescue if they already have a home. So a majority of the people that we help there, it's like one-time emergency vet care. We do cap that grant at 1500 per person, but sometimes you know we can we can play with that a little bit and they can fundraise for it but we've kept almost a thousand pets with families through that program so it's been really successful i'm really proud of it the newer ones one of them is um the silver ticket program and that was from a grant from gray the gray muzzle organization who is awesome and doing really good work right now and for with community programs so we're really grateful for them. But that is our, um, basically, it's a wellness voucher for senior pets who haven't been to the vet for a while. And I really like the gray muzzles take on this because it's not about like emergency care, it's about preventative care. So it's education and advocacy for senior pets and, and getting people before it becomes a problem. So we're able to give vouchers out and then they can come in and get like a, a screening, a dental, their vaccines, medications, prescription food, all that good stuff. The next one is, uh, you tell me, John. What, what's well, you haven't mentioned the apartment, which uh, is really cool. So the apartment, this is my favorite one to talk about for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's been really, really hard. I almost gave up on this program a couple of times. I don't know anyone else who's doing this program and it's exciting, but it's also so hard. So I, and I don't know why I like hard things, but I do, but I think it's just like an indication that like, not everything's going to be easy and that's okay. It, it's going to take some work and some refiguring and not just give up on things if they get hard. So anyways, the idea is that we had an apartment and we had dogs staying there when they had nowhere else to go. And usually they were transitioning from our training center to another foster home. So it was like kind of tougher dogs and they would stay there and we would have volunteers stay there. And at some point we were just like, why don't we just put people who don't have housing there? And if they want to foster a pet or volunteer with us, that can be their quote unquote rent. So we partnered with a group called the Night Ministry, which is a youth advocacy and homeless organization in Chicago. They're very well respected. And they basically handpick people that are transitioning out of homelessness to stay at the apartment and then foster animals for us. We've been doing it for a little over maybe like a year and we've had four residents in there. You know, some of them have been people getting out of domestic violence issues. Some of them have been people with other mental health issues or just like trying to get on their feet before they get a, a new place and a new job. So it's it's been a struggle because it turns out that, you know, uh, social services and those kind of things are really complex and none of us are equipped to deal with some of those issues, which is why we partnered with someone, which I highly recommend if anyone's going to do any kind of social service program, partner with someone who knows what they're doing. But it's been nice. You know, we've helped people and helped pets at the same time. I don't know that it's going to be something that I'm going to scale right away because of how difficult it is. But um, just knowing that like, oh, we had an extra space, we're going to use it. And that's the idea of mutual aid, right? Like you have something extra, so you give it to someone who doesn't have it. So that's the apartment. Did that make sense? Well, it does make sense, except possibly for the fact that One Tail at a Time, an animal welfare nonprofit organization, has an apartment. 
why do you have an apartment? So we rent all of our facilities and um, our training center when we rented it, they're like, there's an upstairs apartment. So you can't board dogs if we're renting out the apartment. So it came with our lease. So we were like, perfect. We can use it to transition animals who need a, a go between before they go to a traditional foster home. And it worked really well with that. And so it was exciting, but then it became a situation where we're like, well, we have this thing, so let's use it for as much good as possible. That's really amazing, Heather. This st it's, work is so hard. And you know, one of the things that keeps us all going are those wins, right? I mean, what a feeling it must be for your staff volunteers, donors to provide shelter, not just for a pet who needs it, but for a pet and a person and someone who is going, I imagine, through a very tough time to get that help at that moment in time in their life. I mean, that just must mean so much to them. And of course, they're also getting the support and love and companionship and purpose that comes with uh, sharing your life with an animal. It's just a very special program. Yeah, thank you. I think I think it's like it's so cool and it's you know, we have so many empty spaces in this country and so many things that like we could give to people that we just don't. And so again, this idea of mutual aid is really pushing to give what you can when you can because there are people that really freaking need it. And in Chicago, we have a big problem with people that don't have a place to sleep at night and I just I can't imagine it. So we do what we can. And again, it's not easy. A lot of this, some of it comes easy, but a lot of it is really not easy. But, you know, I think that we have to push ourselves. One of the points in Dean Spade's mutual aid book is that if you put yourself out there as an organization or as a group and say, like, this is what we do, people think you got it. So if you're going to say, like, we do mutual aid work or we help people or we help animals, like, you better have it and not just do the easy stuff, but do the stuff that, like, no one else is going to do if you don't do it. That's sort of our whole motto is, like, okay, well, we've got to get the most vulnerable populations because we said we got it. So we better have it because no one else is going to do it because they, they're donating to us or supporting us or thinking one tail of time is going to do it. So that's sort of, like, my push to every organization out there is, like, if you're putting yourself out there as a nonprofit and collecting donations, like you need to look for the most vulnerable populations and the people that like people and animals and environment, whatever it is you do that need the help the most, because that's what you signed up for. No one needs another animal welfare organization that's just going to go take the easy adoptable dogs from animal control or just take the, the transports, but they can't have heartworm and they can't be big. Or like all of the, We don't need that anymore. What we need is groups that are going to take chances and not all the chances are going to be successful. I've fallen on my face many times, but when they are successful, it's, it's really incredible and beautiful and it's what people are paying you to do. So um, I think that taking chances and risks for the biggest payout is really important right now. So some of these things you've been doing for a while, some are newer, more are coming. How has this changed the organization? Like how, how have you managed this through as an organization? The core work that you were founded on, pulling pets, adoptions, transports, have those taken a backseat, transport joke, to the things that you've implemented today, this mutual aid work? So we're really lucky that people are very supportive of us with donations, but also like physical help. So um, over the years, we've dramatically increased how many animals we take in with a focus on vulnerable populations. So that hasn't changed. Our adoption program is still like our champion and we do lots of it, but this is just, okay, we're going to do that, but we're also going to do this and we're not going to sacrifice this community work 
for adoption. So, and I think that that's like both in terms of how much money we spend on it, but also in terms of ideals and values. So if we get an animal and it's like a cute little doodle and it might have a a home, we're going to make sure that that person has been contacted to get help if they want it. So we're not going to just be like, oh, this is an easy adopt. We'll probably get good money for it. We're going to insert this value of making sure that pets stay with families that love them in every aspect. Yeah, it's it's an addition and it means that our budget is increasing and our staff is increasing and our output is increasing. But it's important to us that we do both at the same time. Well, you talked about how difficult the work is when you add the complexities of human needs. I mean, using the apartment program as an example, you're providing housing, a home for a person who is there. They're trying to rebuild their life. To do that, they need help. And that help is social work. So just to be clear, you're not putting people in this apartment with, I don't know, an 80-pound, mildly aggressive big dog and saying, you're welcome for the free rent. Glad to have you here. Uh, here's the key. Make sure he goes out to poop and uh, we'll see you. Good luck. <laughs> uh, no, I, and I think that that points out the problem that, you know, there's no easy fixes in homelessness or housing insecurity or, you know, the medical field or any of this, like everyone's situation. And basically everyone I know has a complex situation and they need complex solutions. So it's not a one and done for most people. And it becomes like a a social work relationship, which again, we're not qualified to do, which is why we partner with groups when we have to, but yeah, giving out pet food, once a week or once a month is not enough at this point. And everyone who does pet food pantries, that's that's no shade to you because they're very, very necessary. We do have people in pet food pantry once a month, and I think we're in three different locations now. And the goal is certainly to help feed people, but the bigger goal is to connect with them because at some point they're going to need more help. And if we can be that limb so that they can reach out, that's what we want. So you know, there's a guy that was coming every month and getting tons of cat food. And then, you know, we built up some trust and he's like, well, come see my colonies I'm feeding. And now we're getting all of his colonies fixed. And that's what he really needed. And he really needed that assistance. So like being able to take it a step further is the important part. But yeah, I mean, nothing's easy about anything that anyone's going through right now. There's just so much going on. So throwing some pet food or a vaccine at people is not enough. I mean, these are still very new concepts, I think. I mean, could you even imagine like 10 years ago thinking that an animal welfare organization would ever be putting someone in an apartment, like giving a person housing? Uh, and so definitely new, I think, probably for the social services field as well. So you're showing up to you know meet people like in the social services field and you say, hey, you help people who have pets. We help pets who have people. Let's team up. Are you getting good response or are you getting a, you know, hey, back the you know what up. This isn't your lane. You're out of your depth, uh, you know, or, or is it the opposite somewhere in the middle? Oh, yeah. We got a little bit of that with the apartment. We got someone who was mad at us for housing someone. And I think that it spoke to the fact that, number one, we're not able to provide what a lot of people need, which is why we needed partners. And I think that's really important. But it also speaks to, like, not enough groups are intersectional and not enough groups are working together 
to solve problems. And so when an animal welfare group comes in, they're like, what do you know about any of this? What do you care about homelessness? So we have to do a better job as an industry of showing that we care for people to take us seriously. But I think it's also just so much about finding the right partner because our other partners are amazing and they work through problems with us and they understand that everything's a learning experience and they also understand the end goal is to help people. So they're willing to put that effort in. Where we put time, effort, and money, it's something I think about. I'm going to try to come up with a good analogy. Just bear with me, Heather. Uh, I'm going through some construction work at my home, so this is probably the best I got. If my roof is leaking and the water's coming in, destroying the ceiling, the drywall, the floor, I go to fix it, and all I'm doing is fixing the ceiling, the drywall, the floor. In three months, guess what I'm going to be doing again? fixing the ceiling, the drywall, the floor. So at some point you have to actually go up on the roof and fix that hole. It may be more expensive than doing the interior work. It's preventative. So, you know, maybe it's not as compelling as the interior work. You know, that's going to look great in the before and after photos. And we can tell great stories about this amazing rehab we did in our home from the leak. But that roof part still has to be done because you're not addressing the root issue. I mean, saving cute puppies and kittens, it's very important. They're not less worthy of our help. We need to help the animals today. But there are those root causes that we can't just not ever address. You know, how can we be less reactive so we're not just constantly saying, I see the water damage in the ceiling, got to fix the water damage. You know, Julie Castle, best friend CEO, uh, she always says we can't boil the ocean. Uh, Literally, we're proving we can, I think. But (laughs) metaphorically speaking, Uh, You know, we have to have focus, but not to the detriment of that larger problem and the role we play in solving it. Traditional animal welfare models are so reactive. And we did that for a long time. And it is a lot of work and it's really stressful. And I think we learned a lot because we do a lot of big dog and behavior dog work. And so we did like a big project on how do we prevent them from, you know, our fosters from making the type of mistakes that will get the dog returned or there will be a bite or an incident? Like, how do we get ahead of that? So we did a lot of work there and we ended up doing like a lot of training and having a lot of resources. But a lot of it is really just like the connection you have with the human that's taking care of the the animal and the trust you build and stuff like that. So I think that that process helped us in every way one tail at a time. It's like, let's really break down how we prevent these bad things that like are really stressful (laughs) from happening. So an owner surrender or animal control being full, like how do we really truly stop that from happening? And it's really overwhelming when you think about it as a big picture thing. Like I can't stop 300 animals a day from coming into animal control. But if you break it down to the people that you know and have met through your pantries or your clinics, then you can absolutely handle those people. Or if you break it down to when we started CRISP, the shelter diversion program, we were there um, one day a week because it was like, that's all we can handle right now is, is these four hours. So if we can really, truly get to the root of the problem for these four hours a week, we're going to stop this many animals from coming. And then you figure it out and then you build and you build and you get better at problem solving. And that's what this is all about because the Band-Aid solution doesn't work. Heather, you said this line a couple of times and I just want to come back to it because definitely one of those, you know, say it louder for the people in the back moments. You said it's not rescue if they already have a home. What a beautifully succinct way to say that. And it makes so much sense. 
But that in some circles and a lot of communities still, I think, within the animal welfare community also, still a very controversial thing to believe, to say. There are people listening to this who are struggling because they are in the minority on this. They believe it's not rescue if they already have a home. And they're trying to tell everybody in their community that. And they're fighting what feels like a very uphill battle when they hear so many people in their community tell them that helping these people, those people, is a waste of time, is wrong, is bad, is bad for the animals. What advice do you have for people as they're going through this and, and trying to move the needle on getting people behind programs like this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we made that change. When we started, we never asked anyone if they can keep their pet because the people coming in to surrender their pets were bad. Like that, we absolutely believe that. And I think that, I don't know exactly what changed us. I think observing a lot of the work that other groups were doing, like again, downtown dog rescue, just watching Lori's work has been really eye-opening because she tells stories. And I think the storytelling of this person came to surrender their pet and their mom is sick and they have to move, you know, there's just always like all of these things where it's just like, when you actually truly listen to someone's narrative, it's really hard to classify them as an evil person. And so we dipped our toe into it through the surrender program that we did one day a week. And overwhelmingly, the people that we were meeting were really wonderful people. And a lot of them were in really shitty situations. And to sit back and not do anything and to allow people to judge those people and allow those stereotypes of what type of people are coming into the shelter to mount and not say anything. It got to the point where it was like, if we didn't speak up and do something, then we were bad people (laughs) because, you know, throw in a whatever great quote about, you know, silence being violence that you want here. I can't think of a good one because of COVID brain, (laughs) but you know, if you don't do something and are watching bad judgments and are watching good people get hurt, then you are just as at fault. So for us, it became a situation where it's like, we couldn't not act. We couldn't watch people surrender pets that they wanted to keep. I couldn't watch children cry. And like this happened all the time where families would come in because they didn't have childcare or because they were saying goodbye to the family pet or for whatever reason. And the kids would be hysterical. I couldn't take that pet and rehome it and call myself a hero anymore. That It turned out that that felt really, really bad once you realized what you were doing. So I think taking an opportunity to connect with people, meet them where they are, listen to stories and question yourself. Because I think a lot of times when we do this work, we get really into what we're doing. And and we don't have a minute, a spare minute, because this work is really hard to even question if what we're doing is right. And it could feel like the whole world is against you because there's 300 dogs at animal control, and you're trying to save them and no one seems to care. But you got to shake that off and you got to step outside of it because that is not going to be helpful. One Tail at a Time is one of my favorite organizations of all time, Heather. And it is because of these types of things, you know, not an organization that's happy to sit back, do the bare minimum. You're doing things that in some cases are risky, but you're always looking for ways to grow the impact and get help where it's needed the most. So that being said, what are you working on that no one else knows about yet? But you're going to tell me because I just said all those super nice things. (laughs) 
always have something my board hasn't heard. Okay, one of the things I really want to do that we're working on how to do it is an alternative to police hotline for animal welfare issues. So in our community, there's a rift and there's distrust with the Chicago Police Department and for good reason. And I think that um, while we allow those communities in the department to try to heal, we want to be an alternative. So every summer and every winter, we get a lot of calls of like, hey, my neighbor's dog is outside in the elements and people don't feel comfortable calling the police. So it would be amazing if they can call us and we can help facilitate um, community solutions for these types of problems. So we're going to hopefully, I haven't told anyone this one yet, so this is brand new, but hopefully the plan is to pilot it this fall and start fixing fences for people. So, hey, let us know if your neighbor needs their fence fixed because it started with a woman whose dogs kept poking their nose out and bit a couple dogs. And it was like, those dogs are going to end up in animal control. They're going to be deemed dangerous dogs. They're going to lose their lives. It's going to be bad for everyone. So now we're fixing her fence. We're getting her muzzle, you know, all of those things. And so we want to try it with fences. And then once winter comes around, we'll try it with um, keeping them out of the cold. I'd like to send out a heartfelt congratulations and thank you to everyone on the One Tail team and to everyone in Chicago who are working tirelessly to keep pets and people together. I always enjoy talking to Heather. I especially love it when we get that inside track on what's coming. And if you're a board member for One Tail at a time, please make sure you subscribe to the Best Friends podcast so you are the first to hear what Heather and her team are up to. That's cheeky, I know. I'm sorry, I had to. The team behind the program, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends podcast. <laughs>